All right, good evening, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Philippians 1, we'll be in Philippians 1 if you want to turn there. And we'll pray and we'll get started right away. There's kind of a lot of lead in before we get to the first chapter. So, Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to hang out tonight and um, in your presence to get that refreshing that we need from spending time with you. And we just pray that that would take place as we see Paul's love for this church uh, in Philippi and um, the amazing way it started. And uh, he has such a, it's such a help to him while he's in prison to think of these saints. And uh, Lord, we pray um, for ourselves <laughs> that you would touch us and help us to know how, how much we're loved and appreciated. And um, just that the worship that we give you, you, you love, you, you look for in us. And um, it isn't just it isn't just that's what's expected. It's, it's, a, it's a heart-to-heart relationship with you. you. You love us, and we love you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this, this beautiful book, this little letter that Paul writes. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter to the Philippians was written about 62 AD. So we're towards the end of the book of Acts. So if you don't know, the book of Acts is a historical beginning to the church. That's really what the book is about. It, it sets in, in motion or it, it sets in narrative how things were set in motion by the Holy Spirit. Um, we call it the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the saints, through the believers. We see many people uh, come to know the Lord in this book, the book of Acts. It shows us how different churches were started on three different missionary trips by Paul. And you can track those and trace those. In fact, most of your Bibles, if you haven't explored them, have maps in the back that show you Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey as to how these churches began and when. Well, the book of Acts sort of lays out in a chronological order for everybody um, to read. It's the second part of the book of, of Luke. Luke writes the book of Acts. And so in that book of Acts, we see towards the end, at the very end, Paul is imprisoned waiting for a trial by Nero, the, the emperor uh, of, uh, of Rome. While he's in prison, waiting for his opportunity to speak, he writes some letters to churches that he had started before he was put in prison, just to kind of check up on them or to encourage them in it. And so this is one of those letters that he wrote. Now, the, the Philippians church started when Paul showed up into town and uh, it's in Acts 16, and we're going to turn there and kind of go through that chapter, just so we understand what, where these people come from. Um, and he was trying to minister, and there was this demon-possessed girl who was shouting under the influence of the demon, these guys represent, you know, I'm paraphrasing, we'll read it for actual, but these guys represent the Most High God, and they speak the truth. And Paul was greatly annoyed at her, because it wasn't... A blessing to get this, um, uh, you know, good PR from this demon. Uh, he prefers she just remain quiet because it wasn't helping his mission. And so he turned and rebuked the demon and cast the demon out of this girl. Well, this girl not only did that annoying thing, but she also made a lot of money for some guys that owned her. She was a slave. She, could, uh, she was used for divination. She could tell the future for people. So they would pay these guys to have the freak come out and give the, you know, the prophecy over these people. They would make their money. Well, once the demon's gone, there goes the money, and these guys got upset. Okay. Well, he, Paul gets thrown in prison. Now, in prison, he's put to the middle part of the prison of this town, and he's with his new friend, Philip. Okay, um, I think it's Philip, right? Yeah, no, Cyrus, Silas, sorry, Silas. <laughs> and he's with Silas because this is after the breakup or the split between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was uh, his friend and had brought Paul into the, to, to the ministry, basically. And uh, they got into an argument about whether they should bring John Mark along. They got, there was a split that took place even then. You know, brothers and sisters split up, and, and uh, God used it for good. Anyway, he gets hooked up with Silas, and Silas and Paul move into this town and go through this situation. They're both in prison, 
Okay, so let's turn there before I butcher this any more than I already have tonight. Um, Acts 16. And let's move to verse 11 of chapter 16. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course. Now, when it says we, that means that Luke is with them because he's writing this book. We ran a straight course to uh, Samothrace, um, uh, and the next day came to uh, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. So it's a colony of uh, Rome, uh, a small burg, not like, you know, the big city, but a smaller town. Um, and we were, stay- we were there in that city for some days, staying there for some days. And on the Sabbath day, this would be Saturday, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So these are Jewish people worshiping by the, by the river. They don't have a synagogue in this town. It's not big enough for one. And so they're meeting by the river, and there's, there's no men. It's just the women And uh, she receives the Lord. She receives the Christ. She believes upon Jesus, the Messiah that they have been hoping for. And when she and her household were baptized, so not only does that, but she, the whole house gets saved, right? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So now they've moved into uh, some probably pretty plush uh, accommodations now. They're not used to that, these guys. Paul, he's used to laying on the ground. He's also used to, you know, staying in a bed here. And this woman is, is very wealthy, and, and uh, she's opened her home to the whole gang. And so there they are. Now it happened, as they're now from this house, going out from this house, from Lydia's house, ministering in the town. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation, and this she did for many days. So Paul put up with this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now he's not mad at her, but he is upset with the Spirit. He recognizes it. And removes the spirit. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. This is important. Okay. When Jesus came, um, everybody thought that he was going to take care of the Roman yoke. And I, I'm starting to see more and more how important it was that Jesus not remove the Roman yoke. Because it's going to come in very handy for Paul here. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's a Jew, but he's a Roman citizen. He's a part of the Sanhedrin before he got saved. Now he's saved, but he's a Roman citizen, which is going to afford him a lot of protection. In fact, in this situation, it's going to come in very handy. And so I don't know what we always thought Jesus should do or could have done or what everybody hoped he'd do. Because he left some of the things in place the way he left them, it was very important for the gospel to be spread. It was very useful. Crucifixion, an ugly, horrible thing that the Egyptian or that the, I keep saying Egyptians, no, no better, no worse. The Romans came in and, and brought this way of death, and that was their... That was their way, how horrible it was, and yet, and yet very important for the ministry. I know there's a lot of, you know, and I'm getting way in the weeds now. I'll, I'll come back, believe me. I know what book we're in. We're in Philippi. I know, our Philippians. I know. I'll get there. But it's hard not to see all the dots connecting. 
And as a teaching ministry, I think it's important that we try to connect some dots here, not just get a boost on Wednesday night so that I can maintain my walk with Jesus on Thursday. That's important. But we need to, there's some reason behind this. There's a mind behind the spreading of the gospel. Our Lord has a purpose and a plan, and he's got steps. He's not willy-nilly. He's not, he's not haphazard about what he's doing. There's a reason Rome was left. There's a reason these things came about the way they came about. The reason Paul was allowed to witness Stephen's death and so on. And so Paul is in this place. He's been brought in as a Roman citizen, but nobody knows it. And this is a colony of Rome. They think he's just some crazy Jewish guy. And they don't ask the right questions and they get themselves in trouble. So they brought him to the magistrates and said, these men... Being Jews, forgetting the second part or not even asking about his citizenship, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. This is going to bite him in the rear. Then the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods, which is very, very illegal. A Roman citizen cannot be beaten without a trial. If, if, if you could say, as bad as Rome was, as weird and wicked as they were, they did bring some order to some chaotic towns. And they said, nope, we're going to have a trial. We're going to do it right. We're going to find out what justice is. That was very important to them. Justice was very important to Rome for the most part. So this is not justice, but because they don't know that he's a Roman citizen, doesn't matter. You're just a Jew. We can do whatever we want to to you. There's no process for you. They're wrong. And when they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's like the worst of the worst. But at midnight, Paul and Silas decided to hire a lawyer and really sue this town and get them and show them how wrong they were. See, Paul is working on such a higher level. As Christians, we're called to work on such a higher level. The little things that are going on around it, that's, that's injustice, that's not right. I'm all for justice, and I think we all should be. But Paul can recognize when to assert, and when not to. When it's a part of God's plan, and when it's not a part of God's plan, to assert. Paul says, I think I'm supposed to be here. He could have got out at any time. He could have opened his mouth at any time and says, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm done with this, get me out of here. But he doesn't think his mission is up. His ministry isn't complete. He understands, by the Holy Spirit, there's something bigger going on here than my rights. I think we all have to have that and need that. And I don't think you know that unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that is something that only God between you and him have a conversation about any moment of the day. There's no one you can call that can tell you to give you advice in this situation. You have to be led of the Spirit, and Paul is, and so is Silas. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, this would have been stunning and shocking because all these prisoners do is moan and groan, and they're terrified. There's no hope. You know, it's dark. It hurts. They're in pain. It's in the worst part of their lives. This is it. How did I end up here? That's all they're thinking. Anybody in jail, how did I get here? And here are these two bozos over here who are beating, probably taking care of each other's wounds as much as their shackles will let them. And they're singing praises to God in the middle of this. What a lesson for me. This is the darkest time, and yet Paul and Silas take the opportunity to praise the Lord and thank him and have joy, not maybe not happiness, but joy in it. In it. We can sing praises to God in this. Wow. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed, and the keeper of the prison awaking, awakening, or awaking from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Honor. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here, not one of the prisoners left. I think we're doing a teaching on 16 today instead of Philippians, aren't we? We'll get there. I just want you to see and hear the beginning of this church. We got some ladies by the river that don't have any men and no synagogue, and they're praying faithfully to God. And had probably been praying for, for someone to send someone over to them because that is how Paul got a vision. We got to go way back for that. And Paul makes his way across because of their prayers, ministers to them, calls out this demon, gets themselves in trouble for just doing what this girl needed her whole life, ends up praying and worshiping and singing praises to God. The whole prison decides this is better to be here than to be anyplace else, which reminds me of that song, right? <clears throat> Better one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And they're in the courts. Paul and Silas in the middle of the prison are praising God in such a way that the rest of the prisoners are like, I have such peace and hope here. There's nothing for me out there. I don't want to ever leave this moment, you know. Beautiful. What a light in a dark place. And the guy was like, they're all gone. He says, no, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And he called for a light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He's kneeling before them, bowing his face before them. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I was a dead man. And they're all here. So they said, believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Until all were in his house, they shared. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. They all got saved again. There's a revival taking place in this land, in this little town. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Now if he wasn't going to get killed for losing the prisoners, he certainly could have been killed for bringing them out of the middle where they told them they were supposed to stay, feeding them, taking care of them, and giving them. He says, I don't care. I'm doing it. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. Let them go. Why? So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul. You can imagine how he reported it. You won't believe this, Paul, Silas. They just said you can go. Isn't the Lord good? That's what I would say. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. What a joyful good news I get to share with you. (laughs) Paul pulls the Roman card now. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now, why does he pull out the card now? Because this church is just starting and they need to see some power. I think, I think they need to see not only that uh, God can change the hearts of Kings to uh, mercifully let you go, but that Paul can now stand in front of these same men that beat them and say, Who's in authority now? They need to see that, the Christians do. And I think every one of us needs to know that. And I think we've hit on that several times. When we walk into the room as Christians, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ on this earth, humble, of course. Paul's still humble here. But remember who you represent and who's behind you and whose authority you have. That's very important. So there's times for this. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid and they heard that they were when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. Not yet. We'll let you know when we're leaving town or maybe we won't. But right now we're going to Lydia's house because we're not done planting a church here in the name of Jesus Christ. I like that. 
So when they went out of the prison, they went into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed. Now we'll go. And that's how the church starts. This church is solid. This church is strong. Because it starts, starts with some women by the, by the river, which is wonderful. Faithful saints who have been praying, praying, and praying for God to send them the truth. And Paul comes and shares the gospel with them. But it's also mixed then with prisoners. Now, I don't know if they got out. I don't know if they walked back in and said, that was a great worship session, you know, and shut the doors behind them and stayed or what? I don't know what happened. We don't have the whole story. Maybe they got out. Maybe it was a weekend jail. Who knows? But that's what this church is comprised of. So much grace. So much love. And Paul remembers that. Now, Philippians 1. I've got a lot of time. We could easily do this. So Paul's in prison again. And so what does he think of? Uh, I remember Silas. I remember that one time. This would be a good time for that. And it's already happening. And he'll write that in his letter. The prisoners getting saved in Philippi is also happening in Rome. Paul's in the innermost horrible part, you know, and the guys that are chained to him, each soldier's chained to him. He's that big of a prisoner that they've got personal guys shackled to Paul. Paul's not going anywhere. So what does Paul do with a captive audience? Shares the gospel with every one of these people. The entire household of Caesar is getting saved. You see, Paul sees the ministry so much bigger. You're going to put me in jail and you're going to, you're going to shackle unbelievers to me? <laughs> Have you ever met Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about him. You know, took the opportunity. Didn't plead his case. You know, this is wrong and I'm not supposed to be here. I'm an innocent man. All I did was tell the good news. I don't know why I'm here. Doesn't waste his time on himself, but only upon sharing the gospel with whoever is attached to him. And the whole household is getting saved. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Timothy is not in prison with him. Timothy is waiting for this letter to take it. He's got some other guys with him as well. But Paul starts his letter off, I'm a bondservant. And what that means is, if you don't know, someone who willingly stays a slave for pay, basically. Doesn't, you know... um, Good example of this would be maybe in 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 England, um, British old fashioned when they would have great houses, you know, and there were servants that would live, they would drink and they would eat there. Their whole families would be raised in this home basically as servants of the lords who were upstairs and they were downstairs basically. Um, and so this is very similar to that. We've made an agreement. If you take care of us, we'd love to stay because you're a great boss basically. But it was more than that. It truly was master, lord, and, and servant. You know, it wasn't just employee, employer. It was more than that. In other words, I promised to stay here. And so what would happen was when you promised, you'd get an earring put in. they put your all against the, you put your ear against the door, and they'd stick an all through it, and you get an earring. shows you're a bond, a bond servant. And so the Lord would invest a lot in you because you promised to stay now for life. That's it. And so you couldn't just say, you know what, I want to, I'm going to get a better job someplace else. And we see that happening a lot today. In fact, people are encouraged to switch jobs rapidly. If you want to move up the ladder, switch jobs quickly and go through them and don't wait. Well, what that causes as an employer is I'm not investing a lot of time in you because I know you're going to be here for two years. And if I put too much, if I send you to too many classes and help you, you know, get you, I know that once you ele- buy, you're gone, you know. Well, that's the idea. Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room should be. We should have placed our ear against the door. We should have given our life. We should be tattooed. We should be earringed. We should have his name written across our foreheads by now. We are his. We're slaves. We're servants of his. And he's going to invest. He will pour into us and pour into us knowing that we're going to be his servants here on this earth. Good, faithful servants. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. The bishops is just another term for overseers, leaders of the church. It's that kind of church. They're solid. They've got some organization. They're not just meeting by the river anymore. You know, 
Who's going to lead prayer today? Well, I don't know. Let's just take turns. Now they've got some, you know, some leadership in there, and it's a solid church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of Paul's letters says that, except ones that are, uh, that are written to, like Timothy or, or Titus or whatever, because those have mercy attached to those also. Why does he say grace and peace? We've gone through this several times. Grace is the Greek greeting. Grace. Peace is the Jewish greeting. Shalom. Shalom. And so being both, being saved and also uh, being Jewish, he would say grace and peace. And it has to be in that order. You can't have peace. The, the Jewish greeting shalom is, I hope, you know, shalom, John, you know, shalom. I mean, you don't say it like that. It's good morning. It's shalom. But the idea is, I hope you have peace today. I don't know if you will or not, but I hope you do, you know, kind of thing. And if you really want them to have peace, you say shalom, shalom, perfect peace, you know, shalom, shalom. Well, in his greeting alone, he shows this is how you have peace because your day is going to be what it is. But if you know you have God's grace, then you'll have peace, even in the day that you're going to have, is the idea. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from me, not from anybody else, but from God. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all, all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a semicolon there. I'm going to take advantage of that. That means it's where a period should be. All right, I'm going to do it. Paul is so thankful for these people. He looks back on all the ministries he's ever done, all the churches. Some of them have not been great. Remember, just Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians has bewitched you. doesn't have that for the Philippians. They're solid. They're continuing in grace. They're continuing in mercy. They're continuing in love for each other. They're not partisan. They're not, they've got some false teaching. We'll get into that in a little bit. He's just trying to help them out, but not because they came up with it, because it was brought in, which is usually the case. He starts off with, I hope you have grace. I hope you have peace. I hope you have mercy and understand that. I thank God for you every time. Now, he's not looking at them directly and saying, you know, thank you for all you've done. A lot of people like that. That can be detrimental to someone's ego, unfortunately. It can build it up too much. And so Paul knows that, and he says, I thank God for you. That's a good way to put it, isn't it? You know, Because you know he, he likes you, and he knows what you've done is a blessing, and yet he's trying to protect you a little bit. You know, I thank God for you. It's with joy. Now, we may not happiness in the middle of this Roman prison. I mean, nobody wants to eat the gruel they're bringing to you every day to eat. Nobody likes the cold, damp experience of prison the loneliness, the inability to move freely in this world. That's a big thing. But I do have joy here as I think about you. Some people bring us joy, don't they? Just thinking of, some people don't, unfortunately. You know, as much as you want to be that person in someone's mind that brings them joy when they think of you, it's not always the case because you've blown it in the past maybe and I'm coming up from this angle because that's all we can do is to try to be that, that joy in someone's life. And it's not always the case, you know. Um, but you can work on that. We can work on that. I can be a Philippian to somebody. And it should be our goal anyway. With all joy. Because your fellowship has been such a blessing in the gospel, in the good news. Once you were saved, it's been such a blessing. And I want you to know this. The first thing I want to tell you is that God is going to complete the work that he's begun in you. Now, God calls it a work. Paul calls it a work. We need to understand we're a work. We're a project. I have a lot of projects. Sometimes I get projects started, and it takes me a long time. If I get frustrated in a project, I'll just walk away from it for a while until I get my mind around it or until I get motivated to get at it again, you know, kind of thing. And then I'll complete it later on, and sometimes I don't. You know, but not our God. And Paul wants him to know that. He's begun a work in you. He will complete it. And it may take all the way until Jesus comes. And even then, you may not be completely complete. 
But when you come to know Jesus, when you, when you die and you go to heaven, you be with him, that'll be completed then. Whatever lack there was when you died, it's all fixed. It's done. And he wants him to know that. And we need to know that. It should encourage us on our dark days, on our difficult days, on our days we're frustrated with our growth or lack of it, our backpedaling, our backsliding, three steps forward, two steps back. That's all right. God's going to complete this work. Now, I try to do my best not to be that frustrating work that Jesus needs to walk away from to get his mind around it again. You know, I'm kidding. Of course, he doesn't feel that way. That's me putting my thoughts on God. But I do want to make it as easy as possible for him. And Paul just encourages him. Verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of me of grace, with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I wish I was there, you know. It was such a sweet time. And I don't know if there was a lot of food or if there's just a lot of love. It's got to be a lot of love. There's better times. I'm thinking of better times with you. This is difficult, but just thinking about you, this is beautiful. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to abound with more love, but I want you to see something here tonight. Love is not just saying yes to people. It is with knowledge and discernment. And we've gone over this several times, and I think we all know this, but I think it keeps coming up because in this day and age, if you're going to express love, it has to be an affirmation of whoever the person is in front of you. And that's not true love. That's cowardice. That's love for self. That's love for myself. If I approve of everything, if I just say it's fine, that's a lack of love on my part. It's a self-love. I don't want any conflict. I don't want any difficulty. I don't want to say the hard things, do the hard things for your sake. True love is always looking out for the other person's best interest. And it's not in their best interest to approve sin. It never has been. If God so loved the world, he would have never died on the cross for our sins. He would have just said, it's okay. We're just going to let the, we're going to change sin to being okay. No, because he loved us, he called out the sin and he dealt with the sin himself. And so he hopes that their love grows, but it needs to grow also in knowledge and with discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent and you may be sincere It's a funny word. He's going to use it again, and so I'm going to take some time to talk about it. The word sincere is something they would use to describe without wax is what it means, without wax. Roman culture, they loved their statuary, right? They loved carving, you know. And if you go to some of the nicer, um, really nice museums in New York or Washington, D.C., you'll see some amazing carvings. And... uh, Sometimes you'll see the missing arm and you'll see the missing nose and you'll see these things. Now time's taking their toll. Well, that wasn't too uncommon for artists to be working really, really hard on something and towards the end, putting the final touches on something, knock the nose off. Can you imagine, you know, hours, months of work making this beautiful white marble and then, oh no, you know, they're coming for it Thursday. And so they take the powder of the marble and they mix it with wax and they form a nose. And so you go to buy your statuary and maybe some of these are some of the scratch and dents and you got to go through them carefully. You'd have to look and you'd say, well, I'm looking for, I'm looking for a, a statuary that's sincere. It's without wax. And so they would label those. These are sincere. These are without wax. Now, the only way you can tell whether they're without wax or not is whether there's heat applied. And in the Mediterranean, just sit that statue outside for a, a good 90, 100-degree day, and you'll find out right away whether it has wax or not, because there goes the nose, down the chin and onto the 
floor. Oh, they ripped me off, you know. Paul says, I want you to be without wax as a Christian. If you're missing a nose, you're missing a nose. Don't be faking it. I hope that you're sincere, without offense. And the only way that people know that is whether there's heat applied. I think for me, that's when I find out how close my walk really is. I I only know how close and how genuine my walk with Jesus is only when heat's applied, when I go through a trial or tribulation. Do I burst into a rage? Do I throw up my hands in hopelessness? And where's that Christianity? Where's that reliance upon Jesus Christ? Where did this come from, you know? It was way down deep inside. The heat applied, the trials and tribulations we go through, and Peter mentions this, of course, shows our sincerity or our waxiness. Paul says, I pray that for you, that there's no wax. Wax is the death of a church. It really is. The more of us that walk through these doors with wax, false Christianity, fake Christianity, a face, the appearance of Christianity, the appearance of a relationship with Jesus, but our home is nothing like it. That's our death. Because it comes out, we protect that, which is fake in our lives. You protect it, you know. (laughs) When I first got my braces back in the day, when I'd smile, I'd always, (laughs) and you'll see that, without a doubt, any teenager or tween that gets this, Gets their de- <laughs> they smile like this because they're embarrassed about showing it. They don't want to show it. They don't want anybody. And after a while, you're like, I don't have time for this. You know, there it is. There's all my ugliness, you know. And it's not ugly at all. It's just part of the process of if you want to get your teeth straightened out. It's part of it. And the more times we walk through these doors just talking to people, hi, how are you, you know. It's just let them know. Hi oh my gosh, you need a lot of work. Your teeth are really bad. Yeah, that's why I'm here. You know, the orthodontist of Christianity right here. You know, I'm here to get some work done. I'm getting straightened out. It's a dangerous thing when we begin to to fake it. You know who knows who's faking it? Our kids know. Our kids know. Why don't kids go to church when they get out of the house? Why don't they? Here's one thing I've learned about kids, if I've learned anything. They don't like to waste time. Of course, they think a lot of things that are worthwhile are a waste of time. You know, oh, school. No, you need it. You got to learn, really. The math is important. But if they ever sense that church is just something they do for a couple hours, and then when they get home, none of the things that we did at church and none of the things we talked about at church are happening in the house. It never translates. It never moves on. It never happens anyplace else. What a waste of time. Why would I go? Why would I do that? Why would I serve? Why would I do all the things you tell me? Why do I have to do that? It's so fake. It's so phony. I want it genuine. I want real, you know. I'm not saying that's every kid's reason for not going to church when they're older. Maybe they just never had, well, they were never born again. But when you train up a child in the way they should go, it shouldn't be just bringing them to Sunday school. That's not the training. They need to see it every single day, constantly in your walk. I mean, it needs to be genuine. It needs to be sincere without wax at home. I think we see that. Anyway, Paul's prayer for them is, I just pray for sincerity. Verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. I've been witnessing to everybody. The whole palace guard knows about Jesus Christ. This is great. They're all learning, and everybody in the household. In fact, in one of the other letters, he says, hey, greet everybody in Caesar's household for me. Hey, Paul says hi. Oh, Paul. Such a good brother in the Lord. Don't say that out loud. You know, kind of thing. Nero, he's crazy. I love this. 
It's actually worked out for good. So Philippians is like, oh, Paul, he's in prison. Oh, I pray he gets out. Oh, I hope that he gets his arraignment soon. And I hope he just comes back to see. He goes, you know, yeah, I mean, I do too. But it's actually for, turned out to be really good for the gospel. The guys are getting saved here. Praise the Lord. Don't you love those stories when people tell them to you? Oh, I thought this was going to happen. It was a horrible thing. I mean, there went my heart. And I'm laying there in bed, and I'm in the hospital. And, and all of a sudden, I'm telling the nurse about Jesus Christ. And the doctor's listening to me. You know? it, it worked out. It worked out. God works all things together for good. All things, if we're ready to. The whole palace guard and all the rest. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident in my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Does the exact opposite, you know? We put them in prison and we really tell them to be quiet and shut up and sit down. That's going to squash this Jesus stuff, you know? Persecution always helps. (laughs) Never works. Anytime the church is persecuted, our faith gets deeper. The wax melts off. We're all naked and exposed for what we are in Jesus Christ. And we grow and become better and we become stronger through it every single time. And we spread like wildfire because our faith is so much stronger and brighter. He says, this is working out great. Some indeed, now this is the weirdest section of scripture. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, not without wax, but with wax. That's why that's important we went over that. There are preachers that are teaching from selfish ambition with wax. They're phonies. Supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. There's two groups of guys preaching out there after I got put in prison. Some are thinking it's a great opportunity for them to get ahead of Paul in their ministries, competition. And maybe rubbing it in his face. Sorry you're in prison, Paul. We're not, you know. And others are from actually loving people and not just in competition. Paul says, I don't care. As long as it's solid doctrine, preach Jesus. I don't care what your motives are, provided it's solid. Now, that's an important understanding. Paul makes sure that their motives are pure. If it's false teaching, I don't care how sincere you are, Paul calls them out on the false teaching. Sincerity has nothing to do with it at that point. But if it's the truth, I don't care what your motives are, preach the truth. Get people saved. If it's despite me to make your ministry bigger than mine, I don't care. Expand the kingdom. God will deal with your motives later. You know, competition is ugly, but Paul says, "Be that as it may, whatever." Christ is preached. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. In Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, God does say this. And we've used this in many men's retreats, maybe women's retreats, I don't know. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's okay. That's not competition. That's just maybe Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Forsaking the, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's different. Those two verses are talking about building each other up. You can do it, man. You can do it. You can spread the gospel. I can. The other is competition. There's two different worlds, you know. Paul is like, well, whatever your motives are makes no difference as long as the truth is preached. Fine. The other two are how it's supposed to go down. That's the biblical way. We're supposed to sharpen each other up. Not with conflict, but encouragement in these things. You can do it. You know, you can do it. Let me sharpen you. Or, hey, why didn't you do that? You know, kind of thing. A.W. Tozer wrote this. It's in his book, um, The Price of Neglect. It's a prayer. Here's what he says. Dear Lord, it's a prayer. 
I refuse henceforth to, comp- to compete with any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts, very well. That is not in their power nor in mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory such modest gifts as I possess. I will not compare myself with any, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where I may excel one or another in the holy work. I herewith make a blanket disavowal of all intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of thy people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own if it is thine own. For what is thine is mine, and while one plants another waters, it is thou alone that giveth the increase. I'd like to know that guy, you know. He's dead now, but boy, he ran the race well. It's beautiful. And here's why the competition's bad, because you lose sight of what you're doing. You miss the people. For the sake of growth, for the sake of numbers, you forget the hearts that need to be touched, the depth of the relationship that needs to be built. But Paul says, at least Christ is preached, and we'll leave it at that tonight. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Either way, Christ is going to be magnified. Paul's always been that way about his death. Eh, I could go, or I can stay. It'll be up to the Lord. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. If I live any longer, I'm only going to tell more people about Jesus, and there's only going to be more fruit, so that's a plus. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And you understand that. I mean, he's been beat a lot. It's like, I don't know. If I live, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But if I die, I'd be all right. And he puts to rest here, by the way, the false teaching of soul sleep. As he says right away, if I die, I'll be with the Lord. He doesn't say, if I die, I'll just wait in the grave until it's time for Christ to come get me. No, no, no. For me to die, it's immediately to be present with the Lord. And that's why he told the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise today. There's no soul sleep. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul's letting the Philippians know, hey, I know that you're praying for my release and that I don't die, but I just want you to know if that does go down that way, it's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So if I get out, I'm going to come see you, and we're all going to have a great, wonderful celebration. I look forward to that, if that's the way it goes down. Only, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. I just don't want you to be terrified. I want you to walk in boldness and in faith. He's praying that for them. And he's exampling that for them. He's showing them that in his own life. He's saying, look, you see where I am. And I wrote this letter to you on purpose from this location, from this time in my life, so that you can see. But it's not fake. 
The gospel that I shared with you when I was there, it was real, and it works even here where I am. That is so powerful for the world around us to see. They need to see that Jesus works. Our faith is alive and active. And in the darkest parts, I don't turn into this dark person. I'm still light and bright and shining. I'm, I'm sincere. I'm without wax. Paul says, this is it. That's why I'm writing to you. I pray that for you. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's a gift. He calls it being granted to you. Yeah, you're saved and you get to suffer. Bonus. Now we laugh at that because none of us, none of us like the, the prospects of that. I don't want to suffer at all. I'll be the one that just doesn't suffer. I'll take the first part. And the, no, that's part of it. And there's a reason for it. There is a, a fellowship. There's an intimacy with Christ in sufferings that you can get no other way but through those sufferings. You can't get it any other way. When I hear people talk about, and, and, and this is probably going to hit close to home for somebody here tonight, or everybody, when I hear of somebody aching in their heart for a loved one, broken that they're going in the direction that they're going, and I think we could probably all raise our hands probably, right? That ache that you feel, that struggle, that heart, that love for that person, the hatred for the sin and the love for the person, he deals with that every single day with every unbeliever on this world to a magnitude we couldn't possibly comprehend. My one person that I'm broken over, can you imagine the billions that God's heart breaks over? Because he loves them way more than I do even. That little bit of suffering that we're going through over that person, that laboring in prayer for them, that heart for them, that desire for them, that focus on them, you know, is just but a t- it's just a taste of what God goes through. And yet in that, we get so close to Jesus. So close to him. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. There's that conflict. I want to go be with the Lord, but I know that it's better if I'm here because I'll help you in your, in your salvation and your walk with Jesus. And yet I want to be with God. And yet, ah, you know, that's where we leave tonight. Just a little bit over time, but that's okay. I think it was worth it. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for Paul's heart. Man, what a passionate letter he wrote. And it was written by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what a passionate letter you've written to us. Your heart for us, your love for us. Explaining to us why we feel the way we feel. Why we do some of the things we do. And that's half the battle. Recognizing and knowing why. I pray that we leave here tonight closer to you. Accepting of circumstances and not letting our faith be dictated to by our circumstances, that regardless of whether we abound or we suffer, we're yours and we love you and we're with joy and we're bright and we're shining and we're light to this world, God. So I pray for tomorrow, whatever it brings, whatever is going to come, I don't know for any of us. Might be a great day, might be a horrible day as far as circumstances go, but I pray that we'd be bright for you regardless. I pray that you help these folks, strengthen them, encourage them, Give them a a really good night's rest, a peaceful sleep tonight, a restful time with you, but also (laughs) as we shut down that they just sleep. And when they wake up tomorrow, they're refreshed and ready and prayed up and are full of peace, God, and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up, especially if it's something specific that you're hurting or need to talk about. We'd be glad to do that with you tonight before you go.